Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's decision day for MAGA's Rasputin. The lead starts right now. Breaking news. The committee investigating the Capitol riot is about to vote to hold Trump's former right-hand man, Steve Bannon, accountable for ignoring the rule of law. What that could mean for Trump's other loyalists and for the former president himself. Also breaking right now, President Biden holding critical meetings with his fellow Democrats, still divided over his transformative social safety net and climate change plans. Can Biden deliver? Plus, more mixed messages on mixing and matching COVID vaccines. The FDA expected to say, hey, go for it, but... Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today in the politics lead. In just a few hours, the January 6th Select Committee will vote. It's a vote to hold Trump ally Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for defying the committee's own subpoena, putting on full display... Just how much muscle lawmakers have to seek meaningful consequences for former President Trump's attempt to stage essentially a coup. Bannon is claiming executive privilege, even though Bannon has not worked in the White House in years. Now tonight's vote will kick off a process that ultimately puts this political hot potato in the lap of a self-described apolitical person, Attorney General Merrick Garland. But as CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, whether or not Attorney General Garland will ultimately prosecute Bannon for contempt of Congress, well, that's... Anyone's guess. To defend the rule of law. The January 6th Select Committee making good on their threat and moving quickly to hold Trump ally Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress. We feel this is behavior is outrageous. The committee has requested documents and wants to talk to Bannon about his conversations with Trump and others in the days leading up to January 6th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Tonight, the committee will hold a vote to officially report their claim that Bannon's defiance rises to the level of criminal contempt of Congress. From there, the entire House of Representatives will send the matter to the Department of Justice, where prosecutors will decide whether to prosecute the case. A lengthy process that's likely to be fought in court for some time. We can go up and down the federal court uh, hierarchy Uh, multiple times. So District Court, Court of Appeals, even the United States Supreme Court could potentially hear one of these cases. Historically, uh, one of the remarkable things about the clash between the executive and, and the legislature in this kind of setting involving executive privilege and congressional demands for information is that almost all of the time, the parties have negotiated a settlement. In my house testimony. Bannon seems content to let the courts make the call. In a letter last week to the committee, his lawyers wrote, Until such time as you reach an agreement with President Trump or receive a court ruling as to the extent, scope and applications of the executive privilege in order to preserve the claim of executive and other privileges, Mr. Bannon will not be producing documents or testifying. His posture is hardened by Trump himself filing a lawsuit against the committee yesterday. The committee not buying any of their claims. 
Mr. Bannon has relied on no legal authority to support his refusal to comply in any fashion with the subpoena. The report that they will vote on tonight states. And you can't just say, well, I'm not coming in. Uh, the law requires uh, when a subpoena has been duly issued, as this one was, to come in and make your case. An option Bannon does not appear to be willing to take. And so the committee is moving forward tonight, hoping that other potential witnesses will take note. It's also really important right from the start that we establish that if you ignore your lawful requirement of testifying when you're subpoenaed, you will go to jail. And Bannon is apparently fighting this uh, move by the select committee to report out the criminal contempt referral right up until the last minute. He sent a letter asking the committee to delay their work today. They flatly refused that request. The question now, Jake, is when will the full House vote on this? House leaders saying they're not going to weigh in on that until the committee reports out the referral tonight. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with CNN senior legal analyst and former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York during the Obama administration, Preet Bharara. Uh, Preet, good to see you. During Merrick Garland's confirmation to become attorney general, he vowed to keep the department free of politics. Take a listen. I don't care who pressures me in whatever direction. The department, under if I am confirmed, will be under my protection for the purpose of preventing any kind of partisan or other improper motive in making any kind of investigation or prosecution. That's my vow. That's the only reason I'm willing to do this job. This investigation, however, whether or not Garland likes it, it's politically thorny. There is some bipartisan support. But overall, Republicans are out there saying this is partisan. They want it to go away. Uh, the only reason Democrats are doing this is for political reasons. How can Garland navigate this? Look, I think he stands by his reputation and his career, much of which was as a federal circuit court judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. He has made statement after statement about his independence. You'll recall just a few days ago uh, when Joe Biden was asked a question about this, and I think he probably said what he shouldn't have said and said he, he thought that Bannon should be prosecuted if he defies the subpoena. Uh, Merrick Garland's spokesperson at the Justice Department uh, made a very strong statement about how this is the decision of the independent DOJ. That's how it operates. That's how it goes. And he'll make that decision. You know, that the, the law under which Bannon could be prosecuted, I believe Title II, uh, Section uh, 194, has language in it that says once a certification is made, as we expect to happen in the coming days, about a refusal to testify, the, the relevant U.S. attorney shall presented to the grand jury. The Department of Justice, going back multiple administrations, has taken the position that even though the, the statute says shall present, they retain uh, you know, their own discretion and independence to decide based on all the facts and the laws, they understand it, whether or not they should proceed. And I think you know, that, that uh, Merrick Garland stands firmly in that tradition. So as you just mentioned, uh, President Biden recently he weighed in on whether or not the Justice Department should prosecute Bannon for refusing to comply with this subpoena. Take a listen. What's your message to people who defy congressional subpoenas on the January 6th committee? I hope that the committee goes after them and uh, holds them accountable. Should they be prosecuted by the Justice Department? I do, yes. Now, when I interviewed Biden and Harris in December, President-elect and Vice President-elect, Biden told me, quote, it's not my Justice Department, it's the People's Justice Department. And he said uh, the people that he would pick would, would 
have the independent capacity to decide who gets prosecuted and who doesn't. Um, he suggested also that he wouldn't be weighing in on matters the way that Trump repeatedly do. You think it was a mistake for Biden to say what he said? I do. And, and, I'm, and I, I'm betting that he regrets it. I think their spokespeople at the White House walked it back. As I said, the Justice Department spokesperson strongly refuted that. Uh, and I think Biden has in other places very firmly, including the time you just spoke about, has said the department is independent and makes its own enforcement decisions. I think it was an unfor- unfortunate error in the last few days. Um, but to my knowledge, he's not making any instruction. He's not calling the attorney general. He's not doing any one of the hundreds of things that President Trump did, including calling election officials, calling uh, the acting uh, attorney general of the United States, calling someone else, Jeffrey Clark, who's also been subpoenaed by the committee to try to get his bidding done with respect to specific enforcement actions uh, on specific grounds against specific people. Biden is not doing any of that. So I think it was a mistake. But I I don't think we should get carried away with it because I think he probably regrets saying what he said. If the full House votes to refer the case to the Justice Department, which is expected, uh, the matter will actually go to the U.S. attorney in D.C., not to Merrick Garland himself. You're a former U.S. attorney. Take us inside the room, uh, per se. (laughs) Does the U.S. attorney pick up the phone and call Garland, tell him, hey, I just got this referral? How does it work with such a a prominent and potentially uh, thorny case? Yeah, so... You know, technically, the case goes to the relevant U.S. attorney, in this case, the D.C. U.S. attorney. Uh, I led a famously independent U.S. attorney's office, the Southern District of New York, um, often called the Sovereign District of New York. Uh, each U.S. attorney's office operates with some degree of independence from the rest of the Justice Department and from the attorney general, my office more uh, maybe stridently than others. But I think given the weight of the matter, uh, the issues involved, the focus of the nation on it, I can't imagine that the U.S. attorney in, in D.C., who I know and is a good person and, and an honorable prosecutor, would be doing that without consulting with Merrick Garland. And whether uh, Merrick Garland picks up the phone or the U.S. attorney picks up the phone, um, somebody will, and there will be a discussion about it before they proceed. All right, people, Rob, good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Appreciate it. President Biden hosting Democrats from both sides of the Democratic fight over his multi-trillion dollar spending plans. Are they any closer to a deal? And from founding father to deadbeat dad, New York City decides whether a statue of Thomas Jefferson will remain standing. Stay with us. And we're back with breaking news in our politics lead. Right now, President Biden is in the third hour of his meeting with key progressive Democrats before getting together with moderate Democrats in a few minutes. This is the latest attempt to try to find a compromise to get his transformative legislation to combat climate change and expand the social safety net passed. We're covering this story from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. We're going to start with CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House. Phil, this is the third meeting for President Biden today. Any progress being made? Look, I think it underscores there's been a clear acceleration in the talks and a clear emphasis from the part of the White House, but also Democratic leaders, that the time window is closing and hard decisions need to be made now. Now, Jake, this morning, the president met privately with Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Separately, the two key moderates, and it's worth noting that over the course of the last several weeks, Jake, the White House and top Democratic leadership staff have been meeting behind the scenes trying to address the myriad of concerns, very different concerns, those two senators have brought to the table. And to some degree, that 
that was the lead-in to the current meeting. Nine progressive members of the House, key players in the group that made clear to the president, made clear to their leadership, they would not allow the bipartisan infrastructure proposal to move forward to a vote until there was an agreement on the multi-trillion dollar climate and economic package. The president meeting with those lawmakers, one, acknowledging the critical role they play in the House, but also Uh, I'm told by some advisors to kind of run by them some of the areas where they think they have made headway with Senators Sinema and Manchin. Now, we still have not heard from those members. The meeting was still ongoing a few minutes ago. Last time I checked, there's a possibility we'll hear from those members uh, in a little bit. But the length of that meeting and I think the scale of the meetings throughout the course of today and likely into the next couple of days underscores the clear push from the White House to get a deal and to get one soon, Jake. All right. And CNN's Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill for us as well. Lauren, you're getting New reporting about a lengthy meeting among Democrats this afternoon. Tell us more. Well, there have been a lot of private discussions between Cinema and Manchin and the president directly, but a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill on the Democratic side of the aisle wanted to hear more directly from what exactly Senator Joe Manchin wanted. They got an opportunity today in this private closed-door lunch. Senators met for more than two hours, Jake, which is an unusual amount of time up here on Capitol Hill given everyone's busy schedules. But I'm told from multiple members who came out of that meeting that there was agreement and a real sense of momentum with Senator Joe Manchin in the room today. They were able to sort of hash things out. It was a spirited discussion, and they agreed that they were going to try to find some kind of way forward, some framework, potentially including a top-line number that they all could agree on by the end of the week. Like Phil noted, the deadline for this agreement Mm -hmm. is closing quickly, and there's a sense on Capitol Hill that everyone has to come together soon. Let's go to the White House right now where Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, a leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is talking. Fundamentally lift people up with the priorities that the Progressive Caucus had laid out five months ago. We feel very good that the majority of those those priorities will be in this bill. And I think the president has been working incredibly hard to get everybody to a place where we can move this forward and finish this process so that we can start on whatever is the next important thing that we need to do. So um, I feel like we these conversations have been really important and, and the president's work with the with the senators and then with our caucus in the house had have been really really critical for us to be able to move forward so we're feeling good Look, I, I want to just remind everybody that the House has a Build Back Better Act that had the vast majority of us, progressive, moderate, whatever you want to call us, all agreed to. Um, and so we really are talking about just a couple of people um, that were not there, and we understand that the margins are slim, so we need to get there. And so I think it's it's fine for the president to have smaller meetings with different groupings of people. Um, I think that's a good thing. It doesn't mean that we're not all talking to each other separately as well. So I think we're, we're in a good place. Well, I mean, the president has consistently laid out a number that is somewhere between, you know, 1.9 and 2.2. And I think, uh, look, it's not the number that we want. Um, we have consistently tried to make it as high as possible. But at the end of the day, the idea that we can do these programs a multitude of programs and actually get them going so that they deliver immediate transformational benefits to people is what we're focused on. All right, that's Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington State, leader of the House 
progressive caucus talking to reporters after her meeting and the meeting of other progressives with President Biden during this crucial negotiation period. Phil Manningly and Lauren Fox, we thank you as well. President Joe Biden is going to join CNN this Thursday for an exclusive town hall. He'll answer questions from the American people and from my colleague Anderson Cooper. It's Thursday night at 8 p.m. only on CNN. Be sure to tune into that. Should you mix and match COVID booster shots? The FDA is now weighing in, and that story's next. On to our health lead right now. Boosting with a twist. Any moment, the FDA is expected to announce its plan to allow mixing and matching booster doses. But according to the New York Times, the FDA will stop short of encouraging that. So, for example, if you got the Moderna vaccine originally, the FDA will say it's fine if you want to get a Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson or Johnson and Johnson booster. But the FDA is also expected to say it's probably best to stick with the original vaccine, which, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, is just adding to renewed confusion. Washington State firing its highest paid public employee, college football coach Nick Rokovich, and four of his assistant coaches, all refusing to comply with the state's vaccine mandate. Coaches across the country always try to teach to their players a sacrifice for the team. And in Nick Rolovich's case, not only did he refuse to do that, he never really explained himself. Overall, there's evidence to show vaccine mandates are largely working. 90% of Washington state workers are in compliance, along with 91% of Oregon state workers. In Los Angeles, on the eve of a new mandate, 97% of employees in the nation's second largest school district have shown proof of vaccination, but a third of sworn police officers remain unvaccinated. And in Chicago, they're already taking disciplinary action against some of the 4,500 police officers who failed to disclose their vaccine status, stripping them of police powers. I really hope that the men and women of the Chicago Police Department, who have been fed a lot of stuff, that's the most polite, appropriate word I can use um, in this forum, are not going to ruin their careers over going to a website and saying yes or no. Nationwide, with more than two-thirds of eligible Americans now fully vaccinated, new COVID cases and COVID-related hospitalizations are falling to nearly three-month lows. And more people, tens of millions, could soon be eligible for a booster shot. The FDA is considering whether to authorize Moderna and J&J boosters. A CDC advisory committee could recommend them as soon as Thursday. Two sources tell CNN the FDA is planning to allow Americans to mix and match coronavirus vaccines when they receive their boosters. You cannot get a booster of whatever vaccine you got initially. That should not preclude you from trying to go and get yourself protected. But the plan is already causing some confusion. As the FDA will allow mixing and matching, they will encourage people to get the same kind of vaccine they got initially, according to the New York Times. That, as colder weather once again brings cause for concern. New CNN analysis shows five states already experiencing cold weather are now seeing the biggest pockets of increases. Not everyone can be convinced to get a vaccine, Jake. We know that, but nobody knows about the local health department officials. They are now citing increases in violence, threats and harassment from anti-vaxxers, so much so that a group of these local health officials from across the country have come together to draft a letter to the Department of Justice now asking for protection. 
Jake. Alexander Field, thanks so much. Joining us now is CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a cardiologist and professor at George Washington University Medical Center. Dr. Reiner, good to see you as always. So why is the FDA telling people that they can mix and match, but then saying, but you probably shouldn't? Well, I think it's insufficient for them to do that. Uh, I read about this topic continuously, and I'm not sure I know what to tell people. There's someone in my family that's gotten the J&J vaccine, and I've pulled people around the country to try and figure out what is the best booster. Is it J&J? Is it Moderna? Is it Pfizer? Uh, I think it's actually not J&J. I think it's uh, probably Moderna or Pfizer. But if I don't have a clear feeling for how to boost each of these uh, vaccines— you know, how much can the average uh, American who's not in medicine understand this? So I think if the FDA and CDC are going to allow mix and ma- mixing and matching, they should give some guidance on what, which combinations make sense and when. If I got the Johnson & Johnson dose and research shows that Moderna and Pfizer's boosters might be stronger, why would anyone opt for the Johnson & Johnson booster? I think there's not a lot of reason to it. And if you look at, you know, there was one group uh, of original uh, folks who got uh, the, J- the single-dose J&J who had this increased risk of that rare uh, uh, cerebral uh, venous thrombosis uh, important side effect, which makes one wonder whether anyone should get uh, the second dose, particularly if you're a, a woman uh, under the age of 50, which seemed to be the highest-risk group. And when you look at the data for the J&J uh, boost, yeah, a second dose of J&J can increase the uh, neutralizing antibody levels by about fourfold, but the Moderna uh, boost increased it by over 70-fold, and, and uh, uh, Pfizer about 35-fold. So it's a very good question. Why would you get the a second J&J vaccine? Now, the company says that the, a second J&J vaccine uh, induces uh, you know, great immunity, and that, I, I'm sure, is, is true. But we really need firm guidance from the CDC to inform you know, the 330 million people in this country what to do. Now, look, I get that COVID is COVID-19 is new. Yeah. Uh, and I get that health professionals are doing the best they can. And that ultimately, when you look at the performance of health professionals, uh, it's really been uh, Herculean. I mean, it's just been amazing. That said, throughout this pandemic, there has been a communication issue uh, going on. And again, I know the data changes, but uh, first masks, then vaccines, then boosters, masking uh, again came, came up recently. Uh, what would you say to your patients if they, if they say, this is all so confusing and I, I'm, having, I'm losing confidence in health agencies because they keep changing guidance and, and giving conflicting messages? I would understand, which is why the first suggestion to any patient about booster, about which booster to take, is to talk to your doctor. Right. Most folks have a lot of confidence in their doctor or, or uh, otherwise uh, a provider. And so reach out to them. If you don't know what to do or if you're concerned about getting a third dose of the, of the same vaccine or a second dose of the Johnson Johnson vaccine, talk to your doctor. Your doctor should help, can help you, you know, distill this still very complicated information. And I agree. I think the CDC and the FDA have done an awful job at communicating in a straightforward way to the American people where we stand and what to do and how to stay safe. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As always, Haitian authorities say it is too dangerous for them to go to the area where 16 Americans and one Canadian were kidnapped. So CNN is going to go in a chopper to check out where it all happened. That's next. Plus, Gabby Petito's mother tells us what she would say to Brian Laundrie's parents. Stay with us. 
In our world lead, $1 million per captive. $1 million. That's what the notorious gang behind the kidnapping of 17 American and Canadian missionaries in Haiti is demanding for their release. The hostages are being held near Port-au-Prince, the nation's capital, in a dangerous neighborhood controlled by the gang, according to Haitian authorities, who add that they believe it's too dangerous for them to go there. So CNN's Joe Johns took a helicopter himself to check out where it all went down. As the State Department and the FBI work behind the scenes to free the American missionaries and five children who were snatched in Haiti, a new warning about paying the $17 million ransom the gang behind the kidnapping is demanding. It would be very unfortunate for the $17 million to be paid because that would only reinforce the gang and and that would only finance further kidnappings. And so the solution is to short-term um, send you know experts, security experts to re- to help the police in this particular situation. The missionaries were believed to be staying at a compound in the village of Titayen outside Port-au-Prince. On Saturday, they were kidnapped by a group of armed men while driving back from visiting a nearby orphanage in Croix de Bouquet. Haitian officials say the gang 400 Mawozo is responsible. We took a ride in a helicopter today to get a better view of the area. I've been on many of these roads outside of Port-au-Prince 10 years ago, but it's very different now simply because of the kidnappings. It's not safe for a foreigner to drive on the roads. That's why we're in the helicopter. 400 Mawozo is Creole for out in the country, outside the city. And that's where this group comes from, an armed gang that has grown larger and larger and more powerful, particularly over the last several months since the assassination of the president of Haiti. They control the roads in many ways. The police need help. Kidnapping and robbery has become a part of life on the roads outside Port-au-Prince. But what's different this time is the massive amount of money being demanded in ransom, $1 million per victim. 400 Mawozos started small, first stealing livestock, then cars, and eventually becoming bold enough to carry out individual kidnappings. Now groups of people or collective kidnapping. Authorities blame the lack of law enforcement response for the group's sudden growth. There's a real reluctance from government authorities as well as many people who are part of the electorate, to have another peacekeeping force on the ground to restore order. But if they don't want that to happen, the question is, how can Haiti succeed without getting control of the situation on the ground? Back live now in Port-au-Prince, and we have more detail on the mission of those missionaries who were abducted here In Haiti on Saturday, we're told that they were involved in helping to rebuild the homes of people that were destroyed in the earthquake in August. Jake? Joe Johns, live for us in Port-au-Prince. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And our national lead, Gabby Petito's parents, are speaking out in a new interview. The mother of 22-year-old Petito, who was found murdered last month, said she hopes her daughter didn't suffer. And as for Gabby's missing boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, she hopes to, quote, get him in a cell. Let's get right to CNN's Athena Jones. Athena, Gabby's mom also talked about her last conversations with her daughter. 
Hi, Jake. That's right. It's hard to watch this this interview. Uh, it's heartbreaking to see Gabby Petito's family members mourning. They've been mourning publicly the loss of their daughter for weeks now. We know that they just went out to Wyoming over the weekend to retrieve Petito's remains uh, now that the, the, the cause of death has been uh, already uh, found and, and, and put out in public. And, and the family sat down with 60 Minutes Australia to talk about uh, Gabby's last weeks. Gabby, here's from Gabby's mother, Nicole Schmidt. Worried. Um, I told her to be careful, be safe. You know, make sure the to be aware of your surroundings. Um, you know, don't trust everybody. Uh, I knew, I, but I felt safe because she was with Brian, and I I felt like she would be okay. I think I thought he would take care of her. Just want to get him in a, in a in a cell for the rest of his life. So Nicole Schmidt uh, telling that interviewer she thought her daughter would be safe traveling with her fiancé, Brian Laundrie. Remember, Gabby Petito had lived with Brian and his parents in that home together in Northport, Florida, for more than a year. Uh, So it's very clear this family is still very much struggling, and they still want answers, of course, from the Laundrie family, from Chris and Roberta Laundrie, Brian Laundrie's parents. They want to know why they aren't saying more to help them get the answers they need. Uh, just to solve this case, Jake. Is there any update, Athena, on the whereabouts of Brian Laundry? No update, no confirmed sightings. It's not at all clear that law enforcement is any closer to finding him. We know they, he, they have spent weeks uh, searching that nature reserve, a 25,000-acre park near the Laundry family home. So far, that has turned up nothing. And again, you hear from Nicole Schmidt and, and Jim Schmidt, uh, Gabby's stepfather, Nicole Schmidt saying they want justice for Gabby, uh, Jim Schmidt saying they want vengeance, and, and Gabby's father, Joseph Petito, saying, look, if, if he were in the Laundry family's shoes and it were Gabby who would come home without Brian in Brian's car, he would have been on the phone with, with Brian's parents. And so he's still trying to make sense of this. They're still trying to make sense of this. Uh, Gabby's mother saying that the laundry's silence speaks volumes. Uh, but bottom line here, Brian Laundry's still uh, nowhere to be found. Jake. All right, Athena Jones, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Also in our national lead, it belongs in a museum. That's what New York City officials say about a seven-foot-tall statue of Thomas Jefferson that has presided over the New York City Council Chamber's For more than a century, in a unanimous vote, the commission, which oversees the city's public art, voted to remove and relocate the statue at the behest of members of the council's Black, Latino, and Asian caucus. They say the representation of the slave-owning founding father makes them uncomfortable, and they believe it is inappropriate. CNN's Jason Carroll is in New York outside the city council chambers. And Jason, this has been a 20-year fight to remove the statue. Why now? Well, I think a couple things. First and and foremost, in the wake of the George Floyd protests, what you saw across the country, Jake, is a real effort to reevaluate some of these historical figures, try to put their lives into context. And I think that's what we're seeing with the case of Thomas Jefferson. I mean, you look at a man like Thomas Jefferson, founding father, uh, helped to uh, write the Declaration of Independence, united the colonies, so many accomplishments. But then you look on the flip side, this is a man Jake, who owned 600 slaves. Uh, He had a relationship uh, with one of his uh, slaves, Sally Hemings, fathered children by her when she was just a teenager. Uh, Like most 18th century thinkers at the time, you know, he wrote about uh, whites being superior to blacks. And so if you're a city council member and you're coming into a chamber here at City Hall and you see that statue, that's what you're thinking of each day, day in and day out. And so they put it to the Public Design Commission to do something about it. They took a vote, voted 8-0 to to get rid of the statue, and as you can imagine, 
There are a lot of passionate feelings, some of those who say it should go and some who say it should stay. That statue can no longer exist in those chambers. It's, it's, it's time has just come. I wish this would go to some sort of a referenda or, or polling because I think the majority of New Yorkers uh, would, would disagree with this. Now, Jake, it's unclear at this point where the statue is going to end up. The commission simply voted to remove it from the uh, city council chamber here at City Hall. So maybe it'll end up in a museum or in another public space. What is we can say for sure is that it will be moved out of the uh, chamber here by the end of the year. Jake. All right. Jason Carroll in New York. Thank you so much. Coming up, a private school in Florida may have just reached a new level of anti-vax lunacy. Why kids who get their shot are being punished. Stay with us. In our buried lead now, that's what we call stories we feel are not getting enough attention. The cost of the opioid epidemic in lives and money is staggering. And one family is at the center of it all. Just days ago, a federal judge denied a request from the Justice Department to slow down a legal settlement, which some consider a sweetheart deal for the drug maker. As CNN's Tom Foreman reports, that's just the latest in the long legal fight to figure out who should pay for the tragedy and at what price. The latest move by the court allows the massive bankruptcy deal to keep moving forward, under which the Sackler family would give up ownership and control of Purdue Pharma and surrender $4.5 billion over nine years to help combat the opioid crisis, the bulk going to addiction and treatment programs. In exchange, the family would admit no wrongdoing, be shielded from future civil lawsuits, and hold on to most of their multi-billion dollar fortune unprecedented, and some say unconscionable. They're getting a a sweeping grant of immunity from any future liability associated with the opioid crisis. They pay $4.5 billion, and they'll be richer when they're done paying than they are today. So you tell me, is that justice? Many of the states that were suing Purdue have agreed to the settlement, but the Department of Justice is asking, what about other people with other potential claims against the company? I lost my niece a couple years ago to an overdose. When do families like Joanne Peterson's get their day in court? I lost a brother. Their chance to confront the Sacklers. That family should have to start going to funerals. Purdue pled guilty to federal criminal charges in 2020 over the way it marketed and sold OxyContin, agreeing to pay over $8 billion in the wake of huge criminal and civil investigations. We have targeted unlawful activity involving opioids at every level of the supply chains. As part of the plan to settle civil lawsuits filed by dozens of states and others, the company is being reorganized with an emphasis on helping address the opioid problem. But Purdue is not the only company involved in the epidemic, and the Sacklers have not been charged with any crimes. Indeed, some family members who served on the Purdue board acknowledge the company did wrong, but say they personally acted ethically and lawfully and are troubled over what has happened. My focus mostly was on the needs of patients and doctors. It distresses me greatly and angers me greatly that the medication that was developed to help people 
and relieves severe pain has become associated with so much human suffering. They see themselves as victims in this story. Still, the CDC says nearly a half million people have died from opioids since 1999, and the Sacklers are being harshly criticized for their role in the sad tale, even if many victims think they already know the ending. And here we have to watch them again walk away. We reached out to the attorneys for members of the Sackler family. They did not make their clients available for interviews, but they pointed to written statements and websites on behalf of the family that argue, again, they did not behave improperly, they are being unfairly demonized, and they are committed to helping with the opioid problem. Jake? Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Going face-to-face to stop a family fight, President Biden meets with all of the wings of his party, and one of the congressmen in those meetings will join us live next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, North Korea making waves, literally and figuratively, suspected of launching a ballistic missile from a sub into the Sea of Japan. How the U.S. and allies are responding. And living in the Upside Down, a private school in Florida orders children to stay home if they have received the COVID vaccine. But first, leading this hour, twisting arms for trillions, President Biden holding critical meetings today, first with progressives and right now with moderate Democrats as the party remains divided over President Biden's historic $3.5 trillion spending plan, which includes money for social safety net programs and everything from childcare and universal pre-K to combating climate change. Biden also met solo with two of the moderate senators who are, as of now, the holdouts on this deal. Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Let's get straight to CNN's Phil Mattingly, live for us at the White House. And Phil, progressive Democrats, well, they seemed pretty optimistic after meeting with President Biden just now. That's right, Jake. More than two hours in the Oval Office with President Biden, nine congressional, uh, nine progressive Democrats in the House. And Pramila Jayapal, the chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, said they left the meeting even more optimistic that they would find a, quote, transformational agreement that the president has been reaching for than at any point. And this is just the first of several meetings of several days where the president is trying to clinch the most important parts of his domestic agenda. Our goal is to continue to make progress. President Biden working behind closed doors to close the deal. The president's basing this approach on five decades of Washington, uh, which is a pretty good guide for how to get things done. His dual-pronged multi-trillion dollar domestic agenda hanging in the balance. Biden launching into a week designed to break the logjam. Politics is the art of the possible. And President Biden is someone who understands how to bring people together. Or Monday calls with key moderate Senator Joe Manchin, as well as Democratic leaders. Last night, I continued my discussions with Speaker Pelosi and President Biden as we work to an agreement on legislation we can bring to the floor. And today, separate morning Oval Office meetings with Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema, the two critical moderate holdouts. Afternoon meetings split by ideological leanings. Nine progressives who have urged Biden to go big on his signature economic and climate bill, followed by eight moderates focused on securing the infrastructure bill and a more tailored approach to the economic and climate package. These are serious policy discussions, um, often on nitty gritty details, and they aren't duels between uh, factions. Underscore a moment that calls for equal parts personal touch and tough choices, with Biden facing a cold vote count reality. 
In order to secure the support of moderates, he will need to cut at least $1.5 trillion from his $3.5 trillion plan and significantly reshape key elements on climate, paid leave, and health care. The American people want us to act, and I think we're going to have to aggressively come together uh, to do that. Manchin and Senator Bernie Sanders meeting behind closed doors Monday to make amends after a weekend of public sparring. As to sell the deal, Biden prepares to take his pitch on the road to his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania on Wednesday, before taking part in a CNN town hall in Baltimore on Thursday with Biden and Democratic leaders steadfast on the road ahead. We still have work to do, but we're going to continue at it until, until the job is done. The Jake White House officials have been very cautious about setting any new deadlines, but Senate Democrats were very clear after their own two-hour meeting earlier today. They want to have an agreement on a framework by the end of this week. There's no question there's a lot of work left to be done, but clear momentum at this moment behind an effort that to this point has had very little, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thank you so much, sir. Here to discuss, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California. He was part of that meeting with progressive Democrats that the president had that just wrapped up at the White House. Congressman Khanna, good to see you. Uh, what can you tell us about your meeting with President Biden and why so many of your fellow progressives seem so optimistic? Jake, this was a president in charge. He's taken over the details of the negotiation. He said he is confident that he can get Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin to a place on a framework. And the framework he outlined was an inspiring one and one that I think progressives can get behind. So you saw him in full command of the details. He was going through in detail on the chart uh, every program. Can you give us an idea of what this compromise might look like, what the total uh, cost will be, whether or not programs will be cut or whether or not it will just be uh, for uh, allocated funds for a shorter number of years and any details. I think most of the programs, almost all of the programs, will be there in some form. Uh, it's no secret that the president has uh, thrown out a number around $2 trillion. Uh, that is, I think, where we will uh, end up, around that number. Uh, and almost every priority will be funded. Uh, some of them will be funded less for less years, some for more years. Uh, but overall, uh, there was a sense that the priorities that the progressives care about are in the framework. Give us an idea of some of the, uh, the specific programs that will be in this compromise, theoretically. I appreciate your raising that, because one of the things we talked about is, is we need to be more specific about what's in there. There is going to be universal preschool. The president was the most passionate about this, saying uh, all these other countries do this. This is going to give every kid in America a fair starting point. There's going to be a child tax credit uh, continued. We will have vision, dental, hearing. That is going to be in there. There will be some funding for community college uh, scholarships. There will be funding for uh, the expansion of the Affordable Care Act. So it is a robust program, and there are going to be climate investments, massive uh, investments and extensions in solar, in wind, uh, in uh, water. So universal pre-K would suggest, just for anybody out there who's not paying incredibly close attention to this, uh, that there is not any means testing, mean, meaning it doesn't matter how much money you make, you, you can uh, send your kids to this uh, universal pre-K the same way that any wealthy person can send their kids to the local high school, the local public high school. So that would stay universal. Is there means testing for anything else? Because obviously Senator Manchin has been, and has been pushing for that. That will be universal, and that's a, a big win. There will be means testing for the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. As you know, Jake, 
There was means testing for those programs even in the American Rescue Plan that we passed. The question is, what is the threshold going to be? Uh, I believe it will be higher than the 60,000 that uh, Senator Manchin proposed. It will be significant. There wasn't the level of detail on exactly what that number will be. Uh, that will be worked out. But I'm confident a lot of working class and middle class families will be covered. Now, you just said that there will be climate change provisions. Uh, we have heard and read that one of the big sticking points for Senator Manchin, who we should note represents West Virginia, a coal state, uh, is that he opposes a lot of the climate policies, climate change policies in the bill. Um, where is that going to land? I mean, there is this provision that would give federal money to companies who increase their share of electricity from clean sources and, and penalize carbon tax those who do not. Is that going to be in the bill? The good news is there's going to be about $300 billion of investment in solar, in wind, in hydro, uh, the uh, tax credits to be able to develop that. The CEPP program that you refer to uh, is probably not going to be in the bill. Uh, that is a disappointment. But the president said that he is committed to finding alternative means to get to the 50 percent reduction in emissions that he's committed to and to make sure that he delivers that before he goes to Glasgow. So that is a work in progress. One of the things we discussed is how important it is to make sure West Virginia is a winner in this, that the jobs, the new jobs are actually in West Virginia and other fossil fuel dependent states. Now, the, the, the provision, the bill that you're talking about, the Build Back Better Act, uh, proposes paying for, if not all, most uh, of these programs uh, by raising the corporate tax level, by raising uh, the very highest level uh, tax level. Um, but we've also heard that this is a non-starter, or at least the corporate tax le- uh, increase, for Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Is that true? Is there any change in what Washington, D.C. calls the, the pay-fors or the revenues or what most human beings call tax increases? <laughs> The president said that it will be completely paid for. We didn't get into the specifics of how. Now, half of the plan is basically a tax cut. The part of it that's an earned income tax credit, a child tax credit, that's putting money in the pockets of the working class, especially if it's refundable, it's a tax cut. So that part, uh, Senator Sinema may not be opposed to that spending. For the other parts, uh, the president is confident we'll be able to raise the revenue. I obviously think we should be raising taxes on the ultra-wealthy and the corporate tax rates. I am, believe some of that will be in there. What happens if Democrats cannot make a deal before the self-imposed deadline of October 31st? Again, there's nothing magic about that deadline. It's something that Democrats put as a goal. You guys have already blown through multiple deadlines. Um, uh, and uh, as you know, moderates are already frustrated that the vote didn't happen last month as promised. But do you think this will happen by October 31st? And if not, when? Jake, I used to think Probably not until I met the president uh, this afternoon. And I'll tell you what struck me. He wasn't focused on October 31st, but he was focused on delivering something before he goes to Glasgow. And he made a very compelling case. He said, and he looked people in the eye and he said, the prestige of the United States is on the line. I need this to go represent the United States overseas. I need people to see that the Democratic Party is working, that the country is working, that we can govern. I think that is a very compelling appeal. It, it appealed to me that we need to compromise and give this president a win. And I hope it'll appeal to every American that we want this president to succeed on the international stage. Right. Glasgow, where there will be a, a big international discussion on how to combat climate change. Democratic Congressman 
Rokana, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. President Joe Biden joins CNN this Thursday for an exclusive town hall. He's going to answer questions from the American people and from my colleague Anderson Cooper. That's this Thursday night at 8 p.m. only on CNN. Be sure to watch. As Joe Manchin stands in the way of some of the climate change provisions in the bill, his home state is being transformed by climate change. That's ahead. And Democrats finally trying to scale the stone wall as the committee investigating the Capitol riot is about to vote to possibly hold Trump acolyte Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress. Stay with us. Welcome back in our politics lead. Just hours from now, the House committee investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection is expected to take the first step toward holding Trump ally Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with the subpoena. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, do we know when the full House of Representatives will vote on whether or not to hold Bannon in contempt of Congress? Well, we've just learned, Jake, that the committee expects that full vote in the House to happen by Friday. If it succeeds, then this issue would move on to the Justice Department, specifically the U.S. Attorney in D.C. But the decision on whether to proceed would lie with the boss, Attorney General Merrick Garland. And at this point, it's not clear exactly what he will do. Now, he is facing considerable political pressure. Even though the White House and the Justice Department are supposed to be completely separate, President Biden weighed in late last week saying, yes, he believes Bannon should be prosecuted. And of course, we've seen Democratic lawmakers also calling on the Justice Department to proceed with this, arguing that if they don't, then Trump associates won't have any incentive or need to cooperate. Now, it's interesting, Jake, in speaking with legal experts on both sides of this, including people who used to work for the former president, they've suggested that Bannon could have made this a lot more difficult for the attorney general. He could have shown up and invoked privilege on some questions. He could have taken the fifth. It would have been harder to argue that he wasn't complying. But instead, he and his attorney sent this letter with a blanket refusal, citing privilege, even though many of the items the committee is seeking are not related to conversations with the former president. And that is why the committee says it is likely to proceed on this issue. And they just rejected a last-minute request by Bannon's lawyer to delay tonight's vote. And Paula, former President Trump is suing the January 6th committee so that he can keep his documents private. Uh, What does the committee have to say about that? Well, the committee has dismissed this lawsuit as an effort to delay and obstruct their efforts. They argue that the former president is trying to prevent them from getting facts about January 6th. They argue that privilege is not absolute, and they note that President Biden so far has agreed with them and has not invoked privilege. Now, the archives has told former President Trump that unless he can get a court to intervene or agree with him by November 12th, they are going to hand over this first batch of documents. Now, in his lawsuit, Trump does raise some novel issues, some novel questions about the rights that a former president has to raise executive privilege. It's possible that a court may want to engage on those, which would at the very least delay these proceedings and at most potentially block lawmakers from getting some materials. But legal experts I've spoken with, Jake, say it's a long shot. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my august panel and Brendan as the augustist here. Let me ask you, <laughs> the actions of, the, of this committee have already become very, very partisan, even though Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two Republicans, are on the committee. Uh, and a former Republican congressman, Denver Ringelman, is on the staff. Um, do you think that this is going to, this debate about whether or not Bannon 
uh, is going to be held in contempt of Congress, uh, is going to just split down partisan lines, generally speaking? Yeah, so the next step, obviously, after the committee is they'll have to vote it on the floor to hold for, have Congress hold someone in contempt. The entire body has to vote on it. So I think that will actually be a really interesting vote. I think most Republicans will, will vote against it. it you know, they have successfully made this partisan, and I think that was the goal of Republicans in the first place. But Steve Bannon is not particularly popular among a lot of Republicans. Remember, Steve Bannon spent a lot of time attacking a lot of Republicans. But I think ultimately, yeah, it will fall along party lines. I think what Steve Bannon is trying to do, I think what Donald Trump is trying to do, is they're trying to buy time to get past the next, the next election, the midterm. I think they realize that if Republicans take back the House, which seems increasingly likely at this point, this all goes away. So they're going to hide behind the courts until you get there. And I think Republicans are probably going to go along with them and, and, and hide behind uh, some type of political fig leaf. And Carrie, you're the, you're the attorney on this panel. This could be, as, as Brenda notes, a, a lengthy, potentially years-long legal fight to, to make Bannon testify. Um, do you think ultimately he will be prosecuted by the attorney general? It's hard to prejudge what the Justice Department is going to do with this. But I tend to think that at this point, it really is less about actually obtaining the testimony of Steve Bannon than it is about setting the precedent that criminal prosecution is the potential for all the other witnesses who don't comply. So I think because he might be able to stretch his potential testimony out um, while the Justice Department considers it, and I hope the Justice Department goes through the normal prosecutorial chain of deciding whether a case would be prosecuting, starting with the AUSA to the U.S. attorney and then up to main justice, so that there is a regular order about making that decision. While we're on the topic of Donald Trump, uh, let's just remind people who Republicans are lining up behind, Republican office holders. Um, He just released a a statement about the death of General Colin Powell, who died, we should say. He was fighting uh, cancer and Parkinson's, but his death was something of a surprise. He and his wife, Alma, uh, although they were both uh, vaccinated, tested positive for COVID and, and almost okay, but uh, Colin Powell regrettably died because he had these problems with underlying conditions and a compromised immune system. That said, um, here is what uh, Donald Trump had to say about this decorated, uh, trailblazing uh, Vietnam War veteran and, and general. Quote, wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, Republican in name only, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes. But anyway, may he rest in peace. Um, And that was immediately followed by a link to donate money uh, to Donald uh, Trump. It's hardly the first time uh, that Trump has acted this way. He did it to John Dingell. He did it to John McCain. Um, It's still shocking that Republicans are lined up behind this guy. It is still shocking. And, you know, at the end of the day, these statements over and over again, it all comes back to himself. He points to himself and the fake news media over and over again. And it is still equally shocking. Um, And I guess we shouldn't really expect Republicans at this point to really criticize him over something like this. But, um, you know, Liz Cheney and I think a few others did come out. But we I think we're not going to see top Republicans. Is this shocking, though? Because I don't think anything about this is shocking. I mean, shocking, but not surprising. I, I mean, Colin Powell is someone who dedicated his entire life to serving others. Donald Trump is someone who has dedicated his life to serving himself. I mean, Colin Powell was the first black chief of staff. Donald Trump is the first twice impeached president. I mean, I don't want to attack Donald Trump personally because that takes it down to his level. But he talked about being remembered. He will be remembered as one of the most graceless people who has ever graced this country. Colin Powell is anything but. And it's actually a political gift for Democrats. Every time he does this, he reminds people who revolted from the Republican Party 
the suburban, the educated, the women voters who used to be so important to our coalition, who now have run very far away. Every time he does this, every time he, he uh, invokes racial undertones of some of his statements, they, they go further and further away. So I'm sure, you know, while Democrats are upset that he did this, it's also, an, once again, another gift. It is a, it is a gift. Uh, Republican uh, Liz Cheney, as you note, uh, one of the few Republicans to speak out about this, calling this uh, in a Wyoming newspaper, saying Trump's comments were pathetic garbage. But again, there's a very hotly contested uh, gubernatorial race in Virginia right now. Uh, and I'm sure Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, uh, who put out a ni- very nice statement about Colin Powell, is going to be asked, well, what about this that the leader of your party said? What, what about this? What about this? Well, and two thoughts on this. So with respect to the Virginia governor race, uh, Glenn Youngkin is already on record saying that he would vote uh, and he would support Donald Trump if he was the nominee in 2024. So I think that lets you know where Glenn Youngkin stands as it relates to Trump. And that's after the insurrection. With respect to Colin Powell, as you know, I I work in my day job at a national security and defense uh, think tank. And Colin Powell has inspired generations of national security, defense and foreign policy leaders. And so I just hope as, you know, the, the continuing conversation over the legacy that he leaves the more important piece is the legacy that he has left in terms of his lessons of leadership, um, his inspiration to gener- uh, generations of a more diverse representation in the national security and defense community. And we should just remind people, Trump didn't have to put out a statement about Colin Powell. Obviously, they didn't like each other. Obviously, Colin Powell endorsed Hillary Clinton in 16 and endorsed Joe Biden in 20. Uh, obviously, you know, they, they were not each other's favorite. He could have kept quiet. He doesn't have a Twitter account anymore, but he still like clearly likes to be part of this part of the conversation. And he's going to keep putting out these statements. And um, as we mentioned, there's a reason why Terry McAuliffe in Virginia is continuing to tie his Republican opponent to Donald Trump. The more he keeps putting out these statements, the more uh, perhaps beneficial that strategy could be. Do you think it actually works, though? Do you think the idea of trying to tie Glenn Youngkin, the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Virginia, to Donald Trump. Do you, do you think that works on suburban voters or do people think it's not the same person? I do. I think it works in Northern Virginia. I think, you know, in Southern Virginia, the Richmond area, I think it's a little more complicated. But, you know, now Virginia has become basically Northern Virginia. And so that's the makeup. And so I think that's why you're starting to see this distance uh, put in the poll numbers. Do you? I, I don't think it works when Donald Trump is off the stage. When, Donald, when you haven't seen Donald Trump in a few weeks, and, and Glenn Youngkin does not present as a Donald Trump-type person. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Donald Trump inserts himself in this, and you remind him and you see him every day, it's going to stick a lot more. And so I'm sure Glenn Youngkin would love if Donald Trump would just, for the next two or three weeks, just shut up. <laughs> no you know, chance. It was interesting, though. There was an interview uh, where Senator Cassidy, I think it was, a Republican of Louisiana, said he would not want Donald Trump to be the nominee. He would not support him. But yet, at the same time, there was a new poll I just saw out earlier today showing a significant amount, and in, in fact, a higher percentage than just a few months ago of the Republican voters want Trump to run for president in 2024. Well, look, he has a popularity with the Republican Party. And so in our Virginia governor's race, um, the candidate, Glenn Youngkin, he has said he will support Donald Trump in 2024. He has aligned himself with the uh, anti-masking, anti-vaccine requirement uh, provisions that have been in place. And Virginia, as a resident there, it's been a pretty good place to ride out uh, the pandemic. It's been a pretty safe place. The policies that have been in place um, have made families feel pretty comfortable in in, uh, living throughout the pandemic. You have a Democratic governor. And we have a Democratic governor right now. And so Terry McAuliffe has said that he would continue those policies. 
So I think when it comes to actual policies, um, that's what Virginia voters are looking for when it comes to that race. Speaking, speaking of races, um, New York uh, Mayor, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio dodged questions today about whether or not he's going to run for governor of New York State. He's been putting this out there. You might remember he also ran for president. That didn't go so well. Uh, according to polls, only one in four New York voters view him favorably. Do you think he's going to run? Uh, I mean, I'm sure he can run, but I mean, Cuomo has better poll numbers than de Blasio. I wish him the best. Kyrie will probably play before he wins. <laughs> what, do, do, what about you? Do you think uh, de Blasio has any shot? I mean, yeah, but look, I think what's motivating him is, is his rivalry with Cuomo. There, there are two more two politicians who hate each other more. I, I don't know who they are. And so I think he wants him to, he's probably motivated just kind of to one-up his oh, he Oh, I see. So Andrew Cuomo yes. uh, was forced to resign, and now I'm going to take it kind of thing. <laughs> it's not that petty, is it really? Dude? Well, I mean, poll numbers didn't really even hold him back from jumping into the presidential race. I mean, we forget at this point, yeah. but he ran for president at one point, even though I think at best he was polling at 1% in the oh, Democratic I don't even, primary. I don't even think that. I think that was an inflated uh, percentage that you just gave. <laughs> Thanks, one and all. Really appreciate it. The latest threat from North Korea, shot out of the sea. That's next. And our worldly tensions are escalating on the Korean Peninsula. Moments ago, North Korea confirmed that it had successfully fired a ballistic missile from a submarine earlier today. This test is the latest in a series of, frankly, ominous moves in recent weeks, including what the Kim Jong-un regime claims was a hypersonic missile test last month, which would be theoretically capable of traveling from Pyongyang to Washington, D.C., in less than two hours. CNN's Will Ripley is live for us now. Will, how significant is this latest move? If it is true that North Korea launched from a submarine, and these images that they just released a few minutes ago are strikingly similar to the images uh, from their test in 2019, where they said it was a submarine, but it turned out to be an underwater uh, kind of platform. Uh, So we don't really know for sure, but it is suspected, uh, according to South Korea and uh, Japan and others who are analyzing this, that the the launch did happen out in the sea. And the pictures do show, uh, you know, a ballistic missile coming out of the water and then they show this submarine. Uh, The significance is that if North Korea now has the capability to launch a ballistic missile uh, from a submarine, even though their submarines are not like the US or the UK or what Australia's nuclear submarines will be down the road, or even uh, China, they're they're old, they're clunky, they're, they're noisy, they're pretty easy to detect, but still it gives North Korea potentially the capability to sneak up uh, on enemy shores and launch, you know, a ballistic missile. And that is a not a good development, considering that just last month they said that they also developed a hypersonic missile, which they claim can travel at more than five times the speed of sound, change direction, fly low under the radar. These hypersonic missiles that are currently deployed in China and Russia uh, are basically uh, impossible to shoot down. Uh, So all of the missile defense systems in place to protect the 125 million people in Japan and more than uh, 50,000 U.S. troops would be would be virtually useless against a hypersonic missile. So if North Korea is moving, you know, towards that technology, even if they're not quite there yet, and now they also have submarine launch ballistic missiles, it's really extraordinary that small impoverished country, Jake, has invested so much in its weapons program. Of course, we know it comes at a, at a great cost in terms of uh, many other things in that country that, that need resources that don't get them. All right, Will Ripley, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The senator from coal country blocks President Biden's climate change plan as floods wreak havoc at his home. That's next. 
In our politics lead, just two weeks to go until Election Day in a critical race for Virginia governor. Republican nominee Glenn Youngkin and Democratic nominee Terry McAuliffe on the campaign trail today in the solidly blue northern Virginia suburbs of D.C. And if you want to get a sense of the headwinds in the race, well, look no further than the airwaves. CNN's Jeff Zillany joins us now. Jeff, the ads really tell us a lot about where this race is at. Well, Jake, every election, of course, is about exciting your supporters and turning them out to the polls. But that takes considerably more work during these off-year elections like the Virginia governor's race. So as you said, these TV ads speak directly to the strategies of both campaigns. Democrats are trying to drum up enthusiasm by making this a referendum on Donald Trump. Republicans are trying to fire up their supporters by focusing on schools, highlighting an intense debate happening over in-person learning, mask mandates, and frankly, whether schools are simply too woke. But in this new ad today, the McAuliffe campaign showed again they believe their fortunes must be made by linking their opponent to Donald Trump. How did we end up here? The lies, the division. It starts when we give room for hate to grow. You also had very fine people on both sides. I was honored to receive President Trump's endorsement. But leadership requires taking a stand. I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Go home. So it's unclear how many voters that will actually motivate, but it is also clear school arguments and parents' involvement in schools is now a critical issue in the closing stretch of this race. Youngkin has been seizing upon an assertion from McCullough at a debate last month that parents can be too involved in their children's education. The McCullough campaign is so concerned about this, they are also airing an ad today explaining his comments, saying he believes parents should be involved and he's opposed to government overreach. Jake, listen to this. For nearly half a million Virginia voters, the race is already over. They've already early voted. That number will rise over the final two weeks in a race that's being closely watched as an indicator of which way the winds are blowing for next year's midterm elections. All right, Jake. Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Now from Virginia to West Virginia, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's home state. Manchin today saying no way to yet another potential climate change provision in the president's sweeping social programs package, but Back home in West Virginia, climate change has become a growing threat to West Virginians. CNN's Renee Marsh joins me now live. And Renee, you traveled to West Virginia this week. What did you learn from his constituents? Well, what I learned, Jake, is that it's not just Senator Manchin who doesn't want quick and aggressive uh, action when it comes to climate change. It's many of his own constituents who in real time are feeling the impacts of climate change. So we traveled there to peel back the layers and figure out just why climate change is so complicated in that state. Our house is already following us, too. I said, a baby's here, and one, two, three, five adults. We're in a car, and uh, the car's flooding full of water. Floodwaters submerged people, cars, and homes in what was dubbed the thousand-year flood. The town of Clendenin, West Virginia, almost wiped off the map in 2016. And this past summer, parts of the state saw more flooding. From raging, deadly floods to widespread drought, West Virginians over the past few years have faced weather whiplash, and scientists predict it will get worse. It was rising about about a foot an hour. Jimmy Rader, a retired Iraq War veteran, survived the deadly 2016 West Virginia flooding, but his home did not. Five years later, he's still rebuilding. In the meantime, he, his wife, and three dogs call this camper home. It's really tough. Uh... 
with my PTSD, um, being in such tight quarters. Look around the small West Virginia town of Clendenin, and it's still without a grocery store, bank, and elementary school. Yet Senator Joe Manchin is blocking the most aggressive climate change legislation in U.S. history. This neighborhood lost safe access to their homes after the 2016 flood weakened the foundation of this bridge and rusted it out. If someone dialed 911 could not come across this bridge... Yeah, they'd be afraid that they wouldn't make it, that the bridge might collapse. This bridge is Connie Richards' lifeline to everyday life, including medical care. You just keep moving along and praying you get to the other side. But even in the face of severe weather and its costly destruction, neither Raider nor Richard blame climate change. I'm not buying into the whole climate change thing. So if somebody said, in order to make sure a flood like this never hits your community again, we need to get rid of coal, what would you say? Let it flood again. In the second largest coal-producing state in the nation, climate change is a complicated issue. Senator Joe Manchin, one of the key lawmakers blocking the most aggressive parts of climate legislation that would drastically curb greenhouse emissions linked to climate change, is currently ranked the top congressional recipient of campaign donations from the coal, mining, and fossil fuel industry. Manchin's personal investment in Enersystems, a coal brokerage company he founded and later put in a blind trust, is valued between one and five million dollars. Will you be okay knowing that West Virginia could continue to get hit by severe flooding because we as a country failed to curb greenhouse gases? I think the premise is filled with malarkey. I really do. Now, again, you know, we're sensitive to the fact that if we're contributing towards climate change, but you can't blame every undesirable weather event on West Virginia coal. But we don't have serious droughts here. We don't have serious fires do. here. We the, have a little bit governor, of flooding. Uh, uh, ordered a state of emergency uh, because there were multiple counties going through, through droughts, and almost every county in West Virginia has seen massive flooding. Not, but, but, but it's very, very difficult to blame that on coal because, again, we've cleaned up every airborne uh, constituent, uh, and to the extent we're contributing towards uh, greenhouse gases, we're doing everything imaginable and humanly possible. To Senator Manchin echoed this Monday. We want to make sure we have reliable power. We have, we have basically cleaned up the environment more than any other time in the history of this world. West Virginia University professor Nicholas Zegg has studied the state and climate change for 11 years. He says breaking through the complexity of the issue feels impossible. Climate change is so complicated here in West Virginia because um, West Virginians perceive it as a direct attack on their livelihoods. Um, but it's also interesting, too, that inaction of our business leaders and inaction of our decision makers is also a direct attack on livelihoods. Now, coal, the bottom line is coal is very expensive. There are cheaper en energy sources, and the industry is shedding jobs because of automation, Jake. But they are holding on to this dying industry. Um, many say the reason for that is simply because of the undiversified economy in West Virginia. So, you know, even despite the impact of climate change, you heard the people in that piece say, let it flood. Let it flood again. That was remarkable. Renee Marsh, uh, excellent report, and it's so good to have you back. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Coming up, a private school bans children who got the COVID vaccine. Yeah, you heard me right. Got the vaccine. The junk science behind this bizarre move and what parents are saying. That's next.
the breaking news for you in our health lead now. The U.S. government will soon recommend COVID booster shots for everyone 40 years old and older who received the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. That's according to a source familiar with the plan. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins me now with the breaking details on Elizabeth. This means tens of millions more people can get a booster shot. Right, Jake, if this goes through, that's what that means. And that's because U.S. health officials say that they are seeing new data that shows that fully vaccinated people in their 40s and 50s are sometimes getting severe disease. That was happening in Israel. Israel deployed boosters and they didn't have any kind of an age limit. And the Israelis say that it really helped. And so the U.S. is now likely headed in that direction. Right now, boosters are recommended for folks who had Pfizer only starting at age 65 universally. Younger people are also eligible, but only if they fall into certain categories. So that age would be moved from 65 to 40 or possibly 50 for folks who got Pfizer and for folks who got Moderna. Again, it's because new data is emerging as it, as it has during the pandemic. There's always new data coming in showing that as the vaccine wanes, seeing more hospitalizations among people in their 40s and 50s, even though they're fully vaccinated. Jake? Hmm. All right. Interesting. Now to our national lead. Feels like opposite day at one private school in South Florida where kids are being told to stay home for 30 days if they get a COVID vaccine. You heard me right. If they get a vaccine. The school is citing totally bogus, quote, voluminous anecdotal reports that the vaccine could negatively impact others. It's complete nonsense. CNN's Leila Santiago is outside the school in Miami for us right now. Leila, how are parents reacting to this? Well, you know, Jake, a lot of parents we approached didn't want to talk to journalists about this. But of those who did talk to CNN, they were supportive, supportive of the school wanting students to stay home for 30 days if they get vaccinated. Now, in a letter that went to parents, it was obtained by our affiliate WSVN, uh, they went on to say that if parents are considering vaccinating their students, they're asking them to hold off until summer when, and, and I quote, there will be time for the potential transmission or shedding onto others to decrease. That is not true. There is not a single credible science-based study out there that indicates that the COVID-19 vaccine in any way contributes to transmission or shedding onto others of COVID-19, Jake. Uh, Layla, this school has a history of, to put it nicely, rejecting science. Um, How were they handling vaccinations for teachers when the vaccinations were first approved? Remember, Jake, I I was on your show in April talking about this very school behind me, and it was because in April, six months ago, I spoke to the CEO and co-founder of Sentner Academy, a private school here in Miami, when they were asking teachers to hold off. And yes, to your point, uh, even then they were using false claims, uh, a slew of misinformation to ask teachers not to get vaccinated. And so this misinformation comes as they claim that they want 
more information on the vaccines. But if you talk to anyone from the medical community, they'll be quick to tell you those those studies exist and those studies are favorable to COVID-19 vaccines being not only safe, but also effective in stopping the spread of COVID-19. I can't imagine what science class is like in that school. Leila Santiago, thanks so much. The movie that killed Bond and the Marvel Universe at the box office and why it may be bad news for the U.S. That's next. In our pop lead, Move Over 007, the most popular movie in the world right now, is a Chinese propaganda film glorifying the defeat of the United States in a key Korean war battle. So far, the battle at Lake Shangjin has grossed nearly $770 million at the box office globally, well ahead of the new Bond film No Time to Die, as well as Marvel's new release, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. The Chinese government commissioned the propaganda film, which plays up China's role in helping to defeat uh, American troops by North Korea in a pivotal battle in 1950. The success of the film comes at the same time as tensions between the United States and China, not to mention North Korea, are increasing. You can follow me on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter or on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. And I just want to remind you, if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.